The Art Newspaper Podcast is brought to you in association with Bonhams, auctioneers since 1793. To find out more, visit bonhams.com. Hello and welcome to the Art Newspaper Podcast. I'm Ben Luke. Thanks for listening. This week we look at a new development in the row between Greece and the UK over the Parthenon or Elgin marbles in the British Museum. And we talk to the artist Shirin Neshad. Before we begin, a reminder that you can read the art newspaper anywhere, anytime with our iPhone and iPad app. Visit the App Store, search for the art newspaper and then you can install the free app. If you're a subscriber, all the app content is available as part of your subscription. First up this week, the Parthenon Marbles. The British media got very excited this week by a leaked clause in the latest draft of the European Union's mandate for talks with the UK over their future relationship now that Britain has left the EU. It appeared that the clause may relate to Greece's claim to the Parthenon marbles in the British Museum, those ancient Greek sculptures known in the UK as the Elgin marbles. The clause in the draft mandate, which the EU will adopt on the 25th of February, says the party should, consistently with union rules, address issues relating to the return or restitution of unlawfully removed cultural objects to their countries of origin. Is this a reference to the most disputed objects in the British Museum? Could Greece be using the negotiations to gain new impetus in the dispute? Alexander Herman is Assistant Director at the Institute of Art and Law and he's writing a book on the marbles and we thought this was a good moment to look at the history of the sculptures and what this new development might mean. I spoke to Alexander earlier this week in the art newspaper's offices. Alexander, let's begin by talking about the history of the Parthenon marbles because it's quite a complicated one. It is. Um, I guess we can start in the mid-5th century BC when they were created. Um, So these were... Uh, large pieces of Pentelic marble from Mount Pentelicus, north just north of Athens. And these were brought to the Acropolis uh, by craftsmen, and they were carved into into pieces of columns and, and frieze, etc., and then hoisted up onto the, onto the Parthenon. So uh, they were on the Parthenon for roughly 2,000 years. Um, in the late 17th century, there was an attack on the Parthenon from the, uh, the Venetians, and as a result of that, the Parthenon, which had be, been a temple, a church, a cathedral, a mosque, became a ruin, uh, effectively a shell of its former self. Um, about 115 years later, uh, Lord Elgin, who was the British uh, ambassador to the Ottoman Empire in Constantinople, sent some artists to, to start drawing and measuring the pieces, and that resulted in eventually the removal of some of the key pieces of sculpture from, from the Parthenon. What were they intended to be removed for? Well, initially, when um, Elgin was sent as ambassador, he was quite excited, um, and this was prompted by his his personal architect, who was working on his 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 uh, his manor house in in Scotland called Broomhall. Um, Elgin was interested in just having uh, drawings and paintings uh, made of the pieces and measurements taken as well of these great uh, pieces of classical art. Um, that started to shift once he was in place in Constantinople. Um, the British uh, suddenly were in great favor of the Ottomans because they had repulsed uh, Napoleon and the French from Egypt. Egypt was uh, nominally part of the Ottoman Empire at the time, so the, the Ottomans sort of showered gifts upon upon the British ambassador and, and those around him. And so he was able to obtain a, a letter of permission that allowed his, uh, his artists access to the Acropolis to begin with, the ability to draw, to make measurements, to take moldings of the, of the ancient sculpture, uh, also to excavate, which was a kind of a new thought that creeped into his mind, and then finally to remove some pieces of stone from, from the site. There's a lot of debate about how far you can extend that particular phrase and what it what it includes, but there was a, a letter of permission that included words to that effect. Is it right that that document doesn't exist anymore? So we so we can't be sure exactly what was on it. Uh, that's true. So all that that history has left us is an Italian translation of of the original Ottoman Turkish document letter that was uh, sent with with one of Elgin's secretaries to Athens in 1801. Um, the reason that there's an Italian translation is because Elgin and his men didn't understand Ottoman Turkish. They couldn't read it. Uh, so they wanted a copy, or, or, you know, a genuine copy in a language they could understand. So Italian happened to be one that both Elgin and his principal secretary at the time could read. Um, so they had the Italian copy of the original document, and that, that was retained by Elgin's uh, secretary, and it was eventually given to, to the House of Commons, and we still have a copy of it in the British Museum archives to get today. Um, so all we have is the Italian translation of what 
an original document which no longer exists. It might exist, but a lot of people have looked for it in archives in Istanbul and in Athens, and nobody's found anything. So I think it's fair to assume that the original letter does not exist. But we do have the Italian translation, and there's no reason to doubt that it wasn't a genuine translation. There might have been some nuances that weren't picked up in the in the translation. So that's that's what we have today is this Italian translation with the the infamous phrase at the very end um, that no there should be no impediment to Lord Elgin's men when they wish to take away some pieces of stone or in Italian it was qualche pezzi di pietra. Um, and I've talked to probably about 15 or 16 native Italian speakers and not one of them has said that qualche pezzi di pietra could mean any pieces of stone. They, they would all translate it as some pieces of stone. Um, the original English translation that was provided for uh, at the House of Commons in 1816 said any pieces of stone. So there's, I mean, it's angels on a pinhead, I guess, uh, what, what, how you would translate the Italian, which isn't even the original document. That's a translation of the original document. Uh, so there's been a lot of ink spilled on that on those particular words. Uh, how relevant they are is, is, is a little bit up in the air. But it's it's fair to say that Lord Elgin took the word "some" to mean, <laughs> to, mean <laughs> to be to be lot. very generous. Let's yeah, say, yeah, yeah, because I mean there were roughly uh, ninety large pieces of of sculpted marble that were taken um, off the Acropolis, sent to Piraeus, which is the port near Athens, and then eventually shipped to Malta, and then eventually to England, uh, and specifically to London, where they where they remain. Now, before we get on to the more recent aspects of this. Can you give us a sort of potted history of the dispute itself? Well, um, some people would thank Lord Byron for beginning that because Byron, only a few years after Elgin removed these pieces, or rather Elgin's men removed the pieces from, from Athens, uh, Byron wrote a very um, uh, nasty poem that, that finger-pointed um, Elgin, um, the, the Curse of Minerva, and talked about him as a kind of a vain aristocrat who was going around pillaging um, other great civilizations and so the poor Greeks were no longer had their the remnants of their great cultural history um, I, he said it in obviously more poetic terms than I just have but that's that's the that's the gist of it and so from the very beginning in a sense at least in this country um, there there was a, a push against um, what Elgin had done and indeed against the acquisition by the British Museum of those pieces which happened a few years later in 1816. Right. So Greece becomes an independent state in 1832. And how soon after that are we talking about them beginning to make claims to the sculptures? Well, it's I mean, there is a long history of of discussion on that point, And there are different views on, you know, what is a claim, right? What, how do we define that? But there certainly were requests for specific pieces on the Acropolis. The first recorded one from from the Greek side was not for one of the Parthenon sculptures, but for some of the sculptures that were taken for one of the neighboring temples, the Temple of Athena Nike, also on the Acropolis. Uh, The Greeks, very soon after their independence, uh, decided to rebuild that little temple on the Acropolis, and they were missing, obviously, the frieze, which was at the British Museum at that point. So there were letters, there was communication, diplomatic uh, discussion about the British returning that, which never obviously happened. So um, from that point, there were different sporadic attempts to request the return. Uh, one was made in the 1890s by the, the mayor of Athens, for example. Um, so it's difficult to say when did the claim you know, by Greece first develop. But the, the first official international claim by Greece was in the 1980s when Melina Mercuri was the Minister of Culture for Greece, and she was quite a well-known figure in Greece and internationally. She had been a famous actress. She was quite passionate about this particular uh, issue. And so it was It was really 1982-83 when, when the claim arose, first through the UNESCO, uh, UN's cultural agency, and then a direct diplomatic claim in that period. So what's UNESCO's position on it? Well, UNESCO is is usually quite favorable to states of origin claiming recovery and return, um, but it always becomes very political when it when it comes into the UNESCO forum. So there have been resolutions. There was a there was a UNESCO resolution in Mexico City in in that period in the early eighties, uh, which called on uh, Great Britain to return. Um, the Parthenon sculptures to be reintegrated into the monument, which is obviously not what's you know what's envisaged now because the, the 
Greece has its Acropolis Museum in Athens. But there was there was um, there was you know it was a resolution, so it wasn't binding. Obviously, there was a there was protest from the from the UK side. Um, but there haven't been anything like a, like conventions or any kind of binding international instrument that could actually force the UK to return these pieces to Greece. Now. That said, in a way, the British response has shifted over time, hasn't it? There are certain arguments that, that were made early on which have now had to change. Can you give us an idea of, of those the, the, the British response, both, both, I guess, from government and from the British Museum itself? Yeah, I mean, there, there's a bit of nuance there because um, in, in most instances, the, the British government's response is, well, the British Museum is an arms-length institution, so the decision would be made by them. And the British Museum response is inevitably, well, we're pro- prohibited by statute from disposing of items in our collection, with a few little exceptions, which they tend not to mention. Um, and therefore, you need an act of parliament to change that restriction, which is in our, our governing statute. So, you know, for the, the claimants, or even, even Greece, if they're requesting or trying to enter into a dialogue, they tend to fall between the two. And it, I think, can be very frustrating from, from their perspective in terms of that response. But but the way it's shifted, I mean, there there were some arguments, they weren't necessarily official arguments on the part of the of the UK that well if they return to Greece and if, you know, in the 1980s the talk was if they're ever put back onto the Acropolis because of the pollution in Athens, acid rain, things like that, they will deteriorate much faster than they than they ever would obviously at the British Museum. So there was that argument was floated, I would say more in in editorials than in, in official um, positions um, for the for the UK government. Uh, nevertheless, obviously, there's an amazing museum as of 2009 um, at the practically the foot of the Acropolis, the Acropolis Museum in Athens, which you know does a, is a world class institution, does a stellar job at looking after what it does have, which we should mention is a just under half of the remaining pieces of marble um, are are still in Athens, so they're on display. Um, at the Acropolis Museum, um, as are uh, casts of the pieces that are at the British Museum. So you can, if you look at it at the Acropolis Museum, you see what it would all look like together. But of course, some of the pieces are, are slightly different coloring than the others because they're casts and they're not originals. So. They're essentially placeholders, aren't they? They're sort of this is this is what it would look like if 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 Britain were to act honourably. <laughs> yeah, I mean, when they first opened the museum, um, those places were empty. So for the Metopes, for example, there was nothing there. So that was an obvious plea. But the the director of the of the Acropolis Museum, Dimitri Pandermelis, um, pushed, as I understand it, for for them for there to be cast. So the public, who might not know anything about this dispute, might not care much about this dispute, can at least see what all of these pieces would look like together. Because they see it very much. I mean, the the Acropolis Museum sees it very much as an integral work of art. So their argument is, well, how do we have an integral work of art that's split um, so systematically between two countries? It doesn't really make sense. Right. So this sort of intensified, like last year, for instance, there were claims about the disrepair of the British Museum, for instance, and, and Greece saying, we've got this brand spanking new museum. Look at the British Museum's roof. Things like that, you know, there, it's, it's, there's been digging, hasn't there? Yeah, the I mean, it, it always raises this this issue always raises its head. So, I mean, from the '80s, it became a a cause celebre for any kind of uh, museum repatriation uh, question. Um, everyone would say, "Well, what about the Elgin Marbles?" Um, and every year, two years, there's always some issue that that arises that kind of brings us to the fore, and everyone starts talking, and there are editorials, and everyone has an opinion, and then it dies down again, and then it happens, you know few months later so yeah so last year there was there was that and then and then i guess more recently we have the, the the latest leaked draft of the eu position paper on the on the free trade agreement so let's talk about this then it's a leaked draft of a mandate for discussion yeah, yeah. <laughs> so already we're in vague territory can you explain what this document essentially would be well this this would be the the mandate that the EU negotiators would have to negotiate a, a, a trade and security agreement with with the UK. So so it's their position paper, you know, it's their directive. This is this is what they should negotiate on, this is what they should try to include. These these are deal breakers, things like that. So this is this has been seen as part of that, and at least in this leaked draft of what we know, right? We don't nothing's really confirmed, it's all unnamed sources, it's all pretty pretty vague. 
Um, and of course, the some editorials, you know, jumped on this and said, "Oh, Greece is trying to force the UK to finally give back the Elgin marbles, the Parthenon marbles." Um, and I, I would see it a little bit differently, just in terms of the text as it reads, because it talks about both parties. So we're talking EU and UK parties addressing the issues of restitution and return of unlawfully removed cultural objects. So it could be unlawfully removed from anywhere. It doesn't have to be Greece. It doesn't have to be anywhere in the EU. It could be anywhere. Um, I, I wouldn't necessarily agree that this is Greece trying to you know yank back the Elgin marbles as part of some trade agreement. I see it more as definitely in line with some of the developments at the EU level over the last year or two in terms of cracking down on the illicit trade in unlawfully removed cultural property. Okay, so can you set that in context a bit more what what do you mean so has there been new regulation relating to um this illicit trade and and what are we talking about objects which are coming from current war zones or are we talking about existing objects that exist within a kind of uh, black market so the the eu has been has been quite serious on on the question of of terrorist financing and the link between terrorist activities and the trade in, in looted antiquities and so there was a regulation that was passed in april of 2019 which which is currently in force um in in the eu and and in the uk for that matter um it goes I would argue a little bit further than simply addressing the problem of terrorist financing because it actually covers any unlawfully removed cultural property in any country. Um, so that that kind of material cannot be brought into the EU territory. And now that the UK is no longer part of the EU territory, and maybe there's a fear that the UK might repeal this this particular pro- prohibition, um, it might be the EU trying to make sure that the UK stays on board with that. So that again, if there's a free trade agreement, so if there are goods going back and forth thick and fast between the UK and the EU, the EU, EU is going to want to make sure that the UK has the same standards and employs the same standards as the as the EU does. Otherwise, the UK could theoretically become a port of entry of unlawfully removed material, which could then make it into the EU. So it's part of that the the basis of that trade agreement that 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 kind of stuff does not get in to begin with, and that there. Are, provisions potentially for restitution and repatriation of that material. Aren't there any way guidelines or regulations that come from Britain being a member of UNESCO in the sense of this kind of material, I mean, which have lasted for decades now, is that right? Yeah, so there is an important international agreement uh, that was entered into under the aegis of UNESCO in 1970, called the UNESCO 1970 Convention. It has a very long title that I won't bore your listeners with, but it's basically about combating the illicit trade in cultural property. Um, It's not retrospective, so it doesn't apply to anything that might have left its country of origin pre-1970. It's prospective. Some of the obligations on market states like the UK are fairly limited, Um, so some people argue that it doesn't do enough to combat the illicit trade, but it's there, and it's an important yardstick, and most museums that we've ever dealt with, you know, will abide by that, and will follow the UNESCO 1970 convention, and the 1970 date is so important um, in order for uh, museums making acquisitions to confirm provenance, that the provenance goes back, you know, at least to 1970. And if it's earlier than 1970, if it was removed without an export license, that's usually acceptable in the museum sector. Um, after 1970, you'll need full documentation. So 1970 is an important yardstick, but as I said, it doesn't go retrospectively back to, say, 1801 when the Parthenon uh, marbles were, were originally taken. That I suppose is the big question, isn't it? And then we get into we get beyond the territory of regulation, and we're into this sort of moral territory, and that fundamentally is what this dispute is about 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 honour between nations, etc. It seems to me that that the British Museum doesn't really want to engage with the moral debate. There's a technical debate that that underpins its response to this issue. Is that some? Is that your perception, or or, or is it more complex than that? <laughs> Well, well, the British Museum, I mean, one of the positions that it, it takes is that it's legally restricted from, from disposing of items in its collection, which is not um, technically true because there are some exceptions to that. So if an item, for example, is a duplicate, um, it would be able to dispose of that item without having to change the laws of Parliament. Um, also, if, if an object is deemed, in the opinion of the trustees, to be unfit 
for retention in the collection, they could also dispose of that. And by disposal, I mean, you know, potentially restitution as well. Um, so there are certain exceptions that could arguably be used, but the British Museum, at least on record, has never used those those particular exceptions with regards to restitution. Um, so the, the response when there's a claim or even a request from a country of origin or a community of origin is that the British Museum is is statutorily prohibited from from restituting because it cannot dispose of items. So the 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 sort of deflection is well go go to the British Parliament and get an act passed if you want us to return items, which is effectively what happened in the context of Holocaust looted art. So there was a case that came to the courts in 2005 where some claimants were saying you have effectively Nazi loot in your collection for old master drawings, um, and they belong to our um, our ancestor who had been killed by the Gestapo, we would like them back. The trustees, you know, felt a moral obligation to return those. They had to go to court to see if they legally could return them. And the court said, no, because your statute is quite clear, you would not be able to return these legally. Um, so you need a new act of parliament. So eventually lobbying started. And in 2009, in the UK, there was a what's called the Holocaust Return of Cultural Objects Act 2009. So that deals with that issue. So if it's if it's anything that was taken during the Holocaust period, 1933 to 45 in Europe, uh, there's a whole process that claimants can can use to try to get something out of a national collection like like the BM's collection. But it does but it doesn't go so far as to cover, you know, colonial era material, uh, anything, obviously, the, the Parthenon marbles or anything of that nature either. It's interesting that isn't it? Because taking a post colonial position, there is a very strong argument that some of the acts that were committed under the name of empire were similarly appalling and disgraceful. And therefore, you talk about unfitness, something being unfit for a, for a collection. Is there an argument for moral unfitness? I mean, it's a, it's a big leap to a certain degree, but is there, is there any kind of debate about the nature of unfit? Well, I, I've been writing about it in your, in your newspaper and talking about but there doesn't seem to be um, a lot of openness on that question of what is unfit. And um, not to plug something that I wrote, but for the art newspaper last year on the, on the Ethiopian tablets at the British Museum. Um, those are uh, 11 objects that are sacred to the Ethiopian church. They were taken during, during, a, during a conflict, an armed conflict in 1868. Um, they're not on display. Uh, they're kept in storage. Uh, so they're, you know, there's a strong moral case that those should be returned. And arguably under the terms as they exist of the British Museum Act 1963, there would be a basis for returning them as as being unfit for the collection. And you could remove them. The other requirement is that they be removed uh, without causing detriment to students or visitors. And I think those they're not even on display. Researchers wouldn't have access to them anyway. Um, so why can't those be uh, returned, disposed of under the Act? But my, my impression is that the, the British Museum management and trustees who are making these decisions do not want to open that door. So they're they're willing to countenance for the Tabbots uh, long-term loan because that doesn't fall within any of the restrictions of the act. But they won't they won't countenance a full restitution because possibly they're worried that it would it would open the the dreaded floodgates which is the the argument that's also used. Um one perception that I have is that is that British museums with some exceptions, but on the whole, seem fairly reluctant to really shift their perspectives in this territory. How, do, how does the response of British museums compare to international organisations? Are there more forward-thinking approaches to this out there? Well, one thing I would say about British institutions is I think there, there's quite a difference between the national institutions and their response and some of the smaller institutions, especially university museums. So in the last couple of months, we've seen restitutions from the Manchester Museum, um, from the Edinburgh University Museum, uh, from uh, Jesus College Cambridge, and a number of others. So on a, on a small scale, I think that the UK institutions are, are actually quite active and engaged in these issues. It's the big national institutions that have, you know, that the weight of tradition and, and they have laws in place. I mean, the smaller institutions would not have 
statutory bars the way the national collections would. Um, but even the National Army Museum, which is a national museum but doesn't have the same restrictions as, as the, the British Museum, for example, they returned you know pieces of, of uh, the Abyssinian emperor's hair that were taken in that same 1868 expedition um, by the British against Abyssinia. So I think on the whole, there there has been movement in the UK. Um, the one thing I would mention is that the the Arts Council has currently put out put out a call for tender um, for for restating the guidelines for museums in this country on restitution repatriation, which I think is a very positive development because there does need to be some some harmonization across different museums about their approaches because. Usually for museums, when, when they are approached with a claim or a request, they feel like they're a little bit alone, like they don't know how to, how to deal with it. They don't know what other institutions are doing or what the policy is generally. Um, so I think it's, it's, it's laudable what, what the Arts Council is doing, and we'll see what comes out of that. And there might be some very useful practical guidelines. So in terms of, of the international standards, I think, I think it depends obviously on the country. We know about uh, the, the report that was issued in France in November 2018, the Savoie report, um, which talked about you know, wide-scale restitution of African artifacts to sub-Saharan African countries in France. Um, Germany is doing quite a bit in terms of their, at their governmental level and also with the Humboldt Forum, which is set to open soon. Um, I would mention a country, well, where I come from, Canada, um, which has been engaged with its own indigenous population for well over a, a generation. And so the Canadian Museum of History, for example, has very sound relationships with indigenous communities where they've repatriated things, you know, on a huge scale. Um, but that doesn't necessarily mean that their collection is 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 gone. They still have quite a quite a thorough collection. So I think I think different countries will have different approaches. Usually, if it's dealing with populations within their own territory, they might be a little more open for political reasons. Um, when you're dealing with claimants that come from another country, it it can be more challenging. There isn't the same political pressure. Um, but yeah, I think I think the UK. If you look at just the UK nationals. I think they're often seen as the bogeyman in these in these kinds of cases. And, you know, people from outside the UK will say, well, the British Museum is typically not answering this this quest, request or this claim. Um, but when you look more broadly at, at the smaller institutions, university institutions, um, they are quite active and they are engaging with communities of origin. They're building pretty good relationships with those communities, which are ultimately, you know, beneficial for both sides going forward. So one last point about this current news story. It seems even it's very clear from what you're saying that the connection to the Parthenon marbles is very slim. But could the changing nature of the UK's relationship with the EU leave a gap for Greece to gain more support from the EU, given that the UK is now no longer a member state? Is there any chance that it could gain the EU's backing, if you like, in its claims to these marbles? I think it would be quite difficult just because if you think of other EU member states and the collections that they have in Germany and France and other country, Belgium, um, they're going to be very hesitant about opening those, again, the so-called floodgates, right? They're, they're not going to necessarily want to start negotiating on that, on that point. So while maybe Greece might or Italy might or Cyprus uh, I think it, when it comes to some of those countries, that I, the other countries, Germany, uh, Belgium, France, they'll be much less willing. So I, it would, I think it would be very difficult to get EU consensus um, in terms of the negotiation on that particular front. And, you know, as, as I've said before, I think if there is going to be a resolution of the Parthenon marbles dispute, it's probably going to be museum to museum rather than state to state. Because state to state, you're dealing with politicians, you're dealing with, you know, elections, so the people might change every couple of years. But museum to museum, I mean, this is what museums do best, is they, they, they negotiate loans, joint exhibitions, uh, care and conservation, all that kind of stuff. So they're used to doing it. So if they're the ones who are negotiating about how to treat this, this uh, you know, displaced masterpiece, um, then I think they're the ones who can, who can come to a, an adequate solution. Something tells me it's going to be rumbling on for some time yet. Thank you very much, Alexander. Thank you. You can read more on this and the marbles more generally at theartnewspaper.com. Coming up, we talk to Shireen Neshat about her new London exhibition. But first, here are a few of the top stories on our website this week. 
In an unprecedented collaboration, three blue-chip New York galleries will sell the art collection of the financier and esteemed collector Donald B. Merrill. The deal with Aquavella Galleries, Gagosian and Pace Gallery denies the auction houses one of the most coveted estates of the upcoming season. Maron, who died last December at age 85, amassed a collection of around 300 modern contemporary masterworks, valued at more than $450 million. The three galleries announced a joint exhibition in New York this May, dovetailing with Tefaf, New York Spring and Freeze New York, as well as the city's spring auction season. All galleries partnering on this sale have had long-standing personal and professional relationships with the Maron family, Eleanor Aquavella told the art newspaper. The family decided this was the best course to take based on our mutual respect and our deep understanding of the collection. Among the collection's highlights are works by Picasso, Rothko, de Kooning and Richter. The Cooper Hewitt Smithsonian Design Museum in New York is under the interim directorship of the Smithsonian Institution's provost, John Davis, following the controversial removal of its director arising from an inquiry related to her 2018 wedding. The New York Times reported that the museum's director, Caroline Bauman, was forced to resign from her position on the 7th of February. This was after an investigation by the Smithsonian's Inspector General into how she obtained the dress for her wedding in September 2018 and secured the site for the ceremony. The newspaper said that the Inspector General had questioned the discrepancy between the $750 Bauman paid for the dress, created by the designer Samantha Sleeper, and the $3,000 starting price for gowns advertised on Sleeper's website. The Smithsonian's inquiry also focused on the location of the ceremony, Longhouse Reserve in East Hampton, New York, which has ties to the Cooper Hewitt and did not charge Bauman for the use of its facilities. Six trustees on the Cooper Hewitt's advisory board have resigned in protest at Bauman's removal. A Smithsonian spokeswoman said that the institution had begun its search for a new director. And finally, to mark the centenary of the great Renaissance painter Raphael, this week saw the reunion in the Sistine Chapel in the Vatican of the tapestries he designed for the chapel with the frescoes adorning the walls, including, of course, Michelangelo's great ceiling and his last judgment. The tapestries, depicting scenes from the lives of St Peter and St Paul, were woven in the workshop of the Fleming Peter van Aalst and based on Raphael's cartoons, now in the Victoria and Albert Museum in London. The tapestries are normally shown under glass in the Salone di Raffaello in the Pinacoteca Vaticana, but for one week only they've been allowed to return to their original setting without the glass. There's still a few days left to see them. They're in the chapel until this Sunday, 23rd of February. You can read all these stories and more at theartnewspaper.com or on our app for iOS, which you can get from the App Store. We'll be back with Shireen Neshat after this. Most people lucky enough to live to be 100 probably feel they've earned a rest. Not so Pierre Soulage. The French painter, who turned 100 last December, has an exhibition currently running at the Louvre and still turns in a full day's work in the studio. Soulage has resisted labels his entire career, but there's no argument that he's an unrivalled master of black, the colour that has fascinated him from childhood and dominates much of his output. Which makes the 1959 work to be offered at Bonham's post-war and contemporary art sale in London on the 12th of March particularly rare and intriguing. Bonham's global head of post-war and contemporary art, Rafe Taylor, explained, in the work which is called Painting, 128.5 by 128.5 centimetres, 16th of December 1959, Soulage unusually employs an intense crimson to form the foundation for the painting. This marks the work out from others of the same period and produces a wonderfully mercurial surface that constantly shifts under light. It also undoubtedly echoes the palettes of Soulage's friend Mark Rothko, to whom the French artist had been introduced in New York in 1957, and with whom he became very close. To find out more about this work, visit bonhams.com. Welcome back. Now, on the heels of her largest ever retrospective, which has just closed at the Broad in Los Angeles, the Iranian artist Shireen Neshat is in London this week opening a solo show at the Goodman Gallery. She's showing her latest work, Land of Dreams, which uses video and photography to capture a portrait of American society in the age of Trump. Our associate digital editor, Amy Dawson, met Shireen to talk about the show. Thank you, Shireen, for being with us. We are at the beautiful uh, space of Goodman Gallery in Mayfair in London, which opened last year. Um, And this is the first solo commercial show that you've had here for a long time, it's nearly... 20 years. 20 years. And here you're showing um, your latest work, Land of Dreams, which is made up of two videos, um, more than 100 photographs, um, half of which are here. And so I wondered if first you could tell us a little bit about the story behind the work, which is the first time that you've kind of turned and looked to America rather than looking back at Iran. 
Yes. Um, first of all, as you know, um, every work that I've ever made to this date <clears throat> originates from some personal urge or um, an issue that sort of um, really compels me and I develop an obsession. And for the longest time, I avoided looking into the American culture because even though I've lived there longer than in my own country, I felt that I was still a foreigner. Um, but I think in the last five years, I easily after Trump's election, um, things changed so drastically in the American culture that, um, and, you know, clearly affecting people's lives like myself, um, especially as an Iranian, as a Muslim, as an immigrant. And um, I just suddenly felt that it was important to um, make a work that, sort of reflects my own point of view of how I feel about this country, the, the, the great values and, and the malice of a culture that I also um, love so much. And, and I decided to, you know, take this personal angst and personal uh, point of view into something that addresses multiple issues. Number one, you know, that long and deep antagonism between the Iranian and American societies that has been going on since 1950s. And as you know, it's escalated in the recent time, uh, even as of two months ago. Um, the second is, um, you know, the issue of being an immigrant in this country. And um, so I came up with a concept that essentially evolves around an Iranian woman who um, it's an agent or works uh, for the a very mysterious Iranian colony. It's obviously um, a very fictionalized and surreal colony that it's um, an industrial space that is tucked into it, a mountain. And, and basically their work on daily basis is receiving, processing, and interpreting American people's dreams. And she's an agent that goes daily to small American town, door to door, collecting people's dreams and taking their portraits, uh, introducing herself as an artist, but then hurries back to this Iranian colony um, to deliver them. So I think part of me was uh, to kind of make a, a, a work that is a political satire uh, about the absurdities behind these two administrations that continue to be each other's enemies. Uh, but also on an individual level, look at this woman that is conflicted in between two opposite worlds and and that she herself um, as she goes and collects her dreams slowly begins to identify with American people's dreams and nightmares and at the end you'll see that the nightmares of people all across the planet are not actually that different from one another. I think that one of the most striking things that you see in the work is the kind of diversity of people that you photograph so this is you photographing American people and you were in New Mexico and there's a real mix of ages and ethnicities and genders. Can you talk a little bit about the people that you met along the way? Well, what really I meant with the group of photographs, as you said, are 110, um, that this is what America looks like. I mean, if you really travel with within the states of the United States, um, with the um, the growth of immigration, uh, with the African-American, with the immigration of the Hispanic community, Asian, um, you know, the Native Indians, the Caucasians coming from different um, parts of Europe. I mean, this is a portrait of America in, in my mind. And of course, I focus on New Mexico, which is... Um, very interesting place because it's one of the poorest states in America, um, but a very dominant um, Hispanic immigrant community as well as Native American. Um, so for me, it was very, very interesting as an Iranian living in New York for so long, for the first time ever encountering Native Americans to go to the reservations, to, to go to the Navajo Nation, to be able to um, speak with them and, and you know, also them participating in the video um, and photograph them to hear their stories, then go to Albuquerque where it's a huge um, group of Mexicans living there um, and, and be able to photograph them, people who are homeless, people who just came out of the prison, people who are well-off, people who are middle class, lower class, African-American community, 
community, the Anglo community. And, and the more I traveled in different cities, um, across New Mexico, um, the more diversified, um, and the people became in terms of the races, but also the economic class. And I felt as the artist behind this work that I saw for the first time America. Like what I was in, seeing in New York was so far removed from reality. Um, and that, um, you know, it was very bonding for me as an immigrant to be among other immigrants. And you were able to show this work in its full at your show that just closed at The Broad in Los Angeles. And there you also, it was the biggest survey of your work and you were able to show your early series like Women of Allah that you're obviously very well known for all the way up to this work. I wondered if you could talk about how it was received there because it's kind of a special show for you because Los Angeles is where you first ended up in America when you moved, was it in 1975? Yes, in fact, um, I, I, I studied at high school briefly in Los Angeles and you know, I, I lived there for two years, but I should also mention that Los Angeles is, um, houses the second largest population of Iranian communities outside of Iran. Um, so it was my first, um, exposure in the West Coast, but also to the Iranian community. A lot of, I would say 80% of the people who visited the show at the Broad had never seen my work before. And, and the, the fantastic thing about the Broad is that it attracts a lot of young people and people who never go to museums. Um, and, um, I really felt, and I was kind of concerned about how the work would be received, and especially in the magnitude of the work that was exposed. But also the latest work, which is a a great departure from my earlier work in terms of not focusing on Middle Eastern, you know, um, people, but Americans, and yet with Persian calligraphy and, um, and, and, you know, the video including language, etc. But I feel that, um, the crisis of immigration in the United States, particularly for Iranian community and the Hispanic community who are also a very big community in Los Angeles, um, they really related to the work, especially the land of dreams, um, because, um, it really touched on a certain dilemma that we, um, are coping with, um, uh, especially as Iranians who may be not able to also return to Iran. So they're, they're really cornered on and fighting the battles on both sides, you know. So I think the, the, the exhibition touched people of different constituencies in a way that I was really pleased. I saw on your Instagram account that you also had some celebrity fans that you had uh, Natalie Portman, Isabella Rossellini, Willem Dafoe sending you selfies from the show. Do you have a lot of celebrity fans? Well, you know, I, there, there are some of the people who I've actually had the pleasure to be friends with or work with. Uh, Willem Dafoe and I have become friends because he's from New York and we've been talking about working with each other for the last two years. Um, and um, Isabella Rosalini is another woman from the New York area that I'm a huge fan of. And, and, and Natalie Portman, I actually worked with on a video called Illusions and Mirrors. Um, what's really great is that the broad, um, attracts a lot of people from the film industry, uh, which is something that is not going to happen in New York. And so again, talking about the diversity of the audience, um, it really, uh, not only different racial backgrounds of people, but different disciplines. Uh, and that it's great gift for me because I'm also a filmmaker, not just a visual artist. And um, so I, I ran into people like Matthew Barney and Robert Longo and, and, you know, people who I didn't know they were coming to see the show. So it, it was really um, an experience that I won't know if it will be repeated again. And we've talked before about how your dream with this project is to make a feature-length film out of it. Can you talk a little bit about, have you progressed in that? or? Yes, in fact, as soon as I leave London, uh, we are going to embark on that project. I've already uh, was in New Mexico a few weeks ago where 
uh, we selected the locations. We are uh, we are ready with the script. We are in the process of financing, and we're hoping to shoot the film in the middle of May if all goes well. Um, but you know, again, we take a different approach than the video. The film would be shot in color, it's scripted, and um, we would try not to use the same locations. But the main actress Sheila Wand would be uh, again starring in the film and. I'm really excited because I feel that for the very first time in my career, I've made a project that the still photography, the video installation, and the film work all collapse into one project. And uh, it would be interesting for my audience to see how an idea can sort of develop in three different mediums. I read that you're the only artist or person to have won both the Golden Lion at the Venice Biennale and the Silver Lion at the Venice Film Festival. So it's, you know, it's really the case that you're both an artist and a filmmaker um, in their own right. But I wanted to talk about your early work was really focused on still photography. How did you develop into doing more video and film? You know, when I, I was looking the other day at the Broad uh, Museum and the whole retrospective, and I realized that I am really in love with um, portrait making and the fact that I could capture human emotions. Like, you touch the soul of a human being in by doing their portrait. Um, but the, the thing about the moving picture is the... The, the art of storytelling that you can't really do in a photograph. And um, I think a part of me is a real storyteller. And I love the idea of incorporating landscape, um, performance, music, um, you know, uh, choreography, um, and, and really engross the audience uh, for minimum of 10, 20 minutes in a room um, where they're still emotionally impacted, but it's a, a very immersive experience. And obviously it's a very visual experience because they're very photographic. Um, so I think that I'm just um, infatuated by by both languages of the still photography and the moving picture. I wanted to move on to talking about, um, like you say, you've been spending more and more time in New Mexico for as kind of sets for works that you've been working on. And you take the most incredible landscape photographs of that, like you say, very surreal kind of space. Um, you've said before that you use that location because it reminds you of Iran and you find kind of little resonances of Iran in, in all the different places that you shoot in. You've said that you had a really incredible connection with um, Native American people while you've been there. And I wondered if you could tell me a little bit more about those personal encounters that you've had. Um, it's very interesting. Uh, as um, my experience in New Mexico, it's so extremely close to the main protagonist's experience in the film in terms of uh, me going to New Mexico thinking I'm, you know, I'm making a film and I'm working in my art. But as I um, started to knock on the doors and get to different households and introducing myself as an artist who was trying to make a work and trying to explain my concepts and uh, and my interaction with the different type of people very especially the Native Americans and later the different households in different suburbs. Um, I felt so bonded with these people. Um, you know, for example, with the Native Americans, I, I really, for the very first time, understood um, the depths of the destitute that they've been coping with, the, um, the incredible poverty, the incredible injustice that they've been um, facing as this marginalized community. Um, how, for example, the American government has restricted them to certain lands, which is very beautiful, but they don't actually own as Native Americans. And um, that they're so far removed um, from cities where they, they suffer from lack of employment um, and, and alcoholism is a major issue. Um, you know, I met people who said how their children were taken away from them from the age of 6 to 18 and, and were taken to convents to live in order so they could forget their um, culture and languages and they were forced not to speak with each other in their language and of course they were converted to Christianity and and how the children developed to hate their families because they thought they were the ones who sent them abroad uh, away and, and so and how their language is slowly being forgotten and how there is a 
huge amount of effort by certain people in the community to preserve their heritage and bring back uh, what is lost. And, and so, you know, they were so interested in me and um, meeting an Iranian for the first time and me meeting them for the first time. I've lived in this country since 1975 and I've never met them before, you know. Um, and then when I was in Albuquerque, for example, and a few other suburban towns, I realized the, the depth of poverty in this um, state where people were living hand to mouth and um, and the lack of education, the health system, and uh, and how the twenty dollar that we were offering to in exchange for a photograph, how far it went, and and then, you know, yet the the grace and the the dignity that all these communities held, um, and I just felt um, being surrounded by other immigrants, I I felt so connected, and I in many times I felt that really that's where I should live. You know, aside from the fantastic landscape that I can't just say enough about the Southwest and why so many artists like George O'Keefe, Agnes Martin, so many other artists have moved to New Mexico for the sheer beauty of the landscape. So um, that's part of the reason I'm going back. We published a story actually yesterday on the website about how Trump's border wall with Mexico has involved construction workers blowing up um, ancient sites that are sacred to Native Americans. Um, and it does feel like, you know, the longer that this presidency goes on, the more disconnected those communities are becoming and the more rejected these people are finding themselves. I also wanted to talk about in the news recently, Trump has just announced six more countries for his travel ban. And we spoke when it was first announced a couple of years ago that he was going to start restricting people from particularly Muslim-majority countries um, from entering or immigrating to the US. Um, and Iran is on that list. And, you know, it felt like perhaps the ban was kind of becoming less severe, but now it's been reinstated again. How do you feel like this is affecting kind of artistic communities in America? Well, without a doubt, um, the United States is moving slowly toward fascism. Uh, I mean, I, I, I know that's a very strong word. And um, and when once I used the word tyranny, um, people criticized me and said, oh, you can't say that about America. But, um, you know, um, what is happening, and particularly the way that for example, the Mexican um, immigrants coming across the border, um, not immigrants, uh, Mexicans trying to become immigrants, uh, and Iranians and Muslims have been treated, um, it's uh, quite inhuman. Um, for example, uh, even if you're a naturalized citizen but with, and with an American passport, but born in Iran, the American government has the right to uh, interrogate you at the airport and check your phone, your Facebook, your Instagram. This has been happening just within the last few weeks. Um, you know, this is um, not um, the democratic um, country that I came to and I know of. And, um, you know, I, I was just in Mexico and um, they're also talking about, you know, their history uh, with the United States, how in fact um, so many different states that are in United States today belong to Mexico at one point. Um, I mean, um, it's the absurdity of um, what is happening today and how Trump is trying to purify the country. Um, it's just ridiculous. I, I just, I just don't know what to say about that. Uh, but it's a great concern on the practical level uh, for a lot of Iranians that I know of who, you know, again, um, they don't have any fluidity of going back to Iran. So they consider United States as their main home. And if they're beginning to find some problems, uh, it's a great concern, you know. And um, I am not so optimistic that he won't get reelected. So the future looks pretty bleak. I wanted to talk a little bit about um, your kind of personal history. Not many people know this because now you're an international, you know, star 
in the art world. But actually, when you graduated from UC Berkeley, you gave up art for 10 years. Um, you felt kind of very, maybe uninspired or a little out of place. You know, I always explain how my practice has been the most untraditional practice. And part of it, I, I feel like I owe for my failure at school or the failure to gain an education that could have been beneficial um, in advancing as an artist. I think um, education in art schools are often very beneficial for young artists. But for me, I think um, the the shadow of politics and and then going at school when Iran was undergoing a revolution, um, the vulnerability that I felt in relation to um, that moment of history and not being able to return to Iran, not being able to visit my family, uh, the isolation that I felt in this country as a young adult, uh, all culminated into a kind of paralysis. Uh, I couldn't be, consider myself an artist. I just couldn't possibly um, make art that was meaningful, that could contribute to anything. And so I, I just froze, I think, as an, an artist. And I didn't grow. I, I really didn't. Um, I moved to New York and I spent 10 years of just surviving and, you know, finding ways of earning money and eventually working um, at a not-for-profit organization that I met my previous husband. And those 10 years became suddenly my new education and exposure to the underground New York and the great artists and uh, thinkers and architects. And and so um, all of that, um, you know, culminated into me feeling suddenly mature enough to think about okay, now I can possibly consider being an artist, but lacking the subject matter that felt really urgent. And then going to Iran, finally, after 11 years, and, um, you know, feeling emotionally um, moved and, and sort of um, compelled to sort of embark on a discourse uh, about what I was experiencing, what I was seeing. And that led to a kind of creative process that started with the woman of Allah and then everything developed organically. So when I said, again, this was not a traditional um, sort of evolution of an artist, um, but life um, putting me at places that um, I couldn't have predicted before. and um, But I was pretty comfortable with the idea of not being an artist so I didn't have any ambition of any kind to climb any ladders. In light of your initial feelings of failure as an artist what if any advice do you have for young artists today who are feeling like giving up? Well I think you know I can see how intimidating the art world is especially today uh, not when I started, um, because um, the art world is so celebrity-oriented, it's so much about the market, and um, the super galleries are like, you know, shopping malls of fantastic artists and mediocre artists, but it's all about the value of money, you know. And, and where do you start as an emerging artist, and um, how do you, you know... Um, not lose your soul. I think I always say to young artists that look within um, and and that also um, don't let galleries and museums to be your final outlets. I mean, the greatest things happened to me was one day when I went to a collector's home and I asked if I could use their bathroom and when I went to the bathroom, my work was hanging in the bathroom <laughs> and I was like, okay, I think I'm ready to make movies. Um, and so, you know, the, the truth is that um, that's great to have patronship and, you know, to be able to survive from your work uh, and have great audience in the art world, but let it be that you know, you don't follow the the dealers and the collectors' paths, but you invent your own path. Let them follow you. I wanted to ask you about artists who have inspired you, and I read that you once said Frida Kahlo was an early inspiration for you, the way that she was a woman who was political, 
um, the, her relationship with um, Diego and also the way that her style became an, an extension of her work. Can you say a little bit more about this connection that you feel with her and also any other artists that inspire you? Yeah, I, I tend to have obsession with iconic artists whose lives and art um, cannot be separated. You really, like in the case of Frida Kahlo, you cannot pull apart what happened to her in the course of her life, um, her illness, her accident, her relationship to Diego, um, her relation to communism and um, the time that she lived in Mexico, um, her sexuality uh, from her paintings, you know, uh, where I think in some cases of artists, you can, uh, you know, you really don't need to meet the artists and to know a lot about their personal lives to understand the nature of their narratives or their concepts. Um, because I think in many ways, um, I feel that way about myself. There's no way you can really analyze and understand my work without some perspective of my own personal backgrounds, you know, uh, my separation from Iran, my life in exile, uh, my anxieties as a human being, and, and that is often very political. Um, so, I, I, you know, me being a woman, um, and so I guess I am fascinated by uh, artists who bring into their work so much of themselves. But unlike Frida, my work is not autobiographical. You know, it's very personal. Um, so, of course, I admire a lot of other artists. Um, William Kentridge is on top of the list. Matthew Barney, uh, you know, Carol Walker, Marina Abramovich, Cindy Sherman. Um, you know, and, and you can speak about every one of them for a long time. Um, but I think they're just you know, fantastic artists, and some of the artists I admire are not so well-known. Um, but I think my obsession tends to go to artists who have lived a challenging lives. Because they tell the most interesting stories? Or? I think, I hate to be so generalizing, but, um, you know, the artists who have experienced a lot of pain have an easier time to convey pain. Thank you, Sharon, for being with us. Thank you for having me, and, and I really would like to say thank you, Art Newspaper, for continuing to support me throughout the years. Shireen Neshat's Land of Dreams is at the Goodman Gallery. No, that's the Goodman Gallery, not the Marion Goodman Gallery, in London until the 28th of March. And that's it for this week. You can subscribe to The Art Newspaper at theartnewspaper.com. Click on the subscribe link at the top left of the homepage. And if you haven't already subscribed to this podcast, please do so and give us a rating or review if you've enjoyed it. The Art Newspaper podcast is produced by Julia Mihalska, Amy Dawson and David Clack. And David's also the editor. Thanks to Amy and Shireen, to Alexander, and thank you for listening. We'll see you next week when we're looking at British surrealism. Bye for now. The Art Newspaper Podcast is brought to you in association with Bonhams, auctioneers since 1793. To find out more, visit bonhams.com now.